Hi there, I'm Caroline Lee, and I'd like to welcome you to Authors and Audiences. I'm a Scottish Texan, and before I was a young adult novelist, I had a long career in public relations and media strategy. So if you're an author or an illustrator, I'm here to help you present yourself and your books in public with confidence and professionalism. On Authors and Audiences, my amazing guests and I share with you our top presentation tips and key promotion strategies, so you'll always feel well prepared to talk about yourself and your books in any public setting, whether online or in person. And whether you're talking to two people or 200, to make sure that you feel excitement, not fear. So whatever sorts of books you create and wherever you are on your publishing path, Authors and Audiences is for you. Welcome or welcome back to the new season of Authors and Audiences. And to start us off, I am absolutely thrilled to introduce you to two incredible authors, Danielle Clayton and P. Jelly Clark. Now, they joined me a couple of weeks ago in person here in Houston, which was such a thrill for me. And as you'll hear later in our conversation, we met very appropriately during Band Books Week 2023. Danielle Clayton is the New York Times bestselling YA and middle grade author of, among others, the hugely successful Conjureverse series and the Bells series, as well as being the co-author of Blackout, Whiteout, The Rumour Game, and of course, Tiny Pretty Things, which became a Netflix original series. Her new middle grade book, The Memory Thieves, is the second in the Conjureverse Quartet and follows on from the first book, The Marvelers. She's a former elementary and middle school teacher and librarian. And Danielle is also now COO of the hugely influential non-profit We Need Diverse Book and is also the president and founder of Kate Creative and Electric Postcard Entertainment. So clearly, she never sits down for long. And in fact, her website bio says she is always on the hunt for magic and mischief. And I can certainly believe that. Now, beside her is P. Jelly Clark, and he is the award-winning author of science fiction and fantasy for adults, including the novel A Master of Gin, the novellas Ring Shout and The Black God's Drums. And his short stories have appeared in a number of online venues and anthologies. He's currently visiting schools around the country to share his middle grade debut novel, A Benny's Song, an African and African diaspora-inspired fantasy adventure for middle grade readers, which was released this summer by Tor Publishing's young reader imprint, Starscape. So I'm so excited to be back here with you for a new seasons of Authors and Audiences. And I'm planning to bring you some really interesting and entertaining interviews over the next few months as I talk to more really amazing authors, illustrators, librarians, booksellers and other book related and presentation related guests. So welcome to the new season, the second season of Authors and Audiences. And I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome two incredible authors to join me on the mic today, Danielle Clayton and P. Jelly Clark. Thank you both for being here and welcome to Houston, Danielle. Welcome back home to Houston. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. But you used to live in Houston as a child. Yeah, I did. Uh, I lived in the south southwest part of Houston, yeah. And when did you leave? Oh, I left here a long time ago. 
<laughs> I left Houston to go to uh, college in the 90s, and uh, then I left uh, Texas itself in the early 2000s. Uh, but I still have family here, so I visit when I can. Excellent. Now, I should say that I'm particularly excited to do this interview because it is in person. And unlike most of my interviews, which are done on Zoom, just because, well, we all know it's easier, um, I'm actually in person at sitting around a table with Danielle and Finn um, in the Imprint House. Now, Imprint is an amazing organisation which brings authors to Houston to do readings multiple times a year and also supports writers by offering high quality workshops. It also supports students at the Creative Writing Programme at the University of Houston with fellowships and teaching jobs. So, Danielle and Finn, thank you for coming and welcome to Authors and Audiences. So, you know, an easy one to start with. How did each of you become published authors? And really, at what point did a career in writing really become a thing for you? Yours is more exciting. I think so. Um, I think I was always interested in writing. However, I never thought of it as being a career. I went to school for pre-med. Ah, we have a connection there. And then after some organic chemistry, I decided I wanted to do something else. And so even then, however, I graduated with degrees in history. I went into, uh, I got a master's in history and later a PhD. But during that time, I took up writing. And writing was kind of like my escape, writing speculative fiction. But even then, I don't, I didn't think about getting published. When I finally decided I wanted to get published, I had no idea how the industry worked. So it was just such a learning curve. And so, you know, becoming a published author for me probably took, I would say, about 10 years of trial and error, uh, coming really close and failing and finally just learning the industry and, um, a lot of luck. <laughs> that I happened to be writing at a time when the kind of books I was writing was something that the industry decided that they wanted to publish and that I had some good people who were gatekeeping at the moment who could uh, help me out. So yeah, it, it, it was a long road. It was a, I would say it was an easy road or a fun road. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm glad I arrived here. And you're actually in academia as well. Yes, you? I'm in academia. In fact, my my writing, I would say my writing career as far as a professional writer took off literally on the day that I walked to get my PhD. Oh my One gosh. of my first stories published on tour.com, Dead Jin in Cairo, came out while I was walking. So as I'm trying to get my hood, I'm reading my phone. Where are we It's a big audience. It's big time. And really, yeah, it's been a it's been a bit of juggling two writing careers. So I have to have two writing careers, juggling both of those uh, since be more fancy. So tell us your very boring story then, Donnell, which I can't imagine it's yes. going to be. It's boring. I mean, we have a lot in common in that I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be the first doctor in my family. I went to Wake Forest University and I was like, I'm pre-med, yes. And then I hit chemistry and I failed. I had a tutor. I worked hard. I just was hopeless. And I was miserable. I'm a spoiled brat and going to college was really difficult because I didn't have my own bathroom anymore. I had to like deal with like not getting a hot breakfast from my parents, from my mom. So I was just having a mess. And um, so I had to try to find joy. And so what I did was I went to the bookstore and I started rereading the books that I loved as a young person to sort of find a balance between high between all of the stuff I had to do for my classes and dealing with, you know, being far away from home. And I was such a big reader as a kid. And then I thought, oh, well, 
be a teacher or a librarian. I love books. That is something I love. I thought I was going to love trying to be a doctor. Didn't love that. And then I became a teacher and librarian for many years. And my students in East Harlem, New York, were really frustrated with the lack of options. And I was, and I had a robust budget when I was buying everything that I could get my hands on. And there just wasn't a variety at the time. This was around 2011, 2012, where my students were able to see themselves reflected in the types of stories that they wanted to read. There are plenty of stories about history, things that pressed down on the bruises of their collective backgrounds and like what was a teachable education, no lesson for them, but they wanted magic. They wanted mischief. They wanted drama. They wanted adventure. They were like, why? one kid asked me, he's like, why don't kids like me save the world? Why don't I get to do that? And that made me really angry. And then I decided to get a second master's degree in writing for children because I was like, you know what? I have a master's in children's literature. I know the canon inside and out, inside and out. I know the books. Let me figure out the writing piece. And that's when I started writing for them to try to help them see themselves so they could develop a better relationship with literature with a capital L and then help their literacy rates and help them catch up so that they can also fall in love with story the way that I did when I was a young person. So I was just a reader. I like telling people what to do. And um, and I was really angry. That's how I got here. And I failed. I failed in, into this. I, well, I, mean, I think that's a fairly... The fact that you came into this angry... Yeah, I was angry. And looking at what you've done, you've stayed angry. Yeah, so mad. <laughs> so angry, little man. I know, and I'm tiny, so... Well, it, it has made a huge difference, as, as we'll find out. And you're both here in Houston because you both have middle grade books out yeah. this week. Mine was out last week. Last week. Uh, Mine came out in July, um, but... You know, school's back on. July is not a great time to to get books out to children because they tend not to be in school, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. That's a that's a shame. So tell us a little bit about your books that we're looking at today. Okay. Um, so the second book in my Controverse series, the first book, The Marvelers, came out in May of last year, and now we're returning to that universe for year two at the Magic School, um, and that is in The Memory Thieves. And it's about basically a world where there are three people, three types of people. There are boring, non-magical people. We don't care about that. And then you've got Marvelers and Conjurers. And those two magical groups of people don't get along. And so in the first book, we learn about some of the history of that because we're following the first Conjurer student to ever go to this Magic School that's in the sky. It moves all over the world. And all of the secrets that she uncovers about the history of this place, and also sort of all of the things that, you know, she will face as the first of her kind to go. And then we're following her for year two, where there are more secrets uh, to find out. Um, And there might be something that sort of shuts the school down for a little bit, and she has to figure out where she belongs. So, so yeah, in book two of a four-book series, and just trying to make sure everything makes sense. Fantastic. Well, I've heard you doing an interview. I looked it up online. And when the presenter referred to the series, she referred to it. It's called the Conjureverse series. And it sounded like the Controverse series. Right. Yeah. That is so perfect. And then I read it and thought, no, that's it's it's controverse, not controverse. Well, there's some controversies in it for sure. Um, I definitely use the underpinnings of um, school integration in the 1960s and what my parents did in Mississippi and North Carolina as the underpinning 
my main characters may be a magical Ruby Bridges. Uh, so there is some controversy. If you go head first into some issues, it's just a fantasy landscape. Yeah. We can talk about the, the hard stuff. Mm-hmm. So I love that. And how about you, Finn? Yeah, so this is actually my first foray into middle school. I've written adult uh, science fiction and speculative fiction books. I've written at least one adult. One of those adult books did cross over into middle grade. It's called The Black God's Drums. And so, you know, I wanted to take my hand at doing middle grade myself. It was actually, actually what's funny is this first middle grade book I'd actually written before a lot of my other books. It's just happened to be now is the time to get published. So this is the first of a trilogy. It's called Benny Song. And it is a secondary world fantasy. Uh, so that means it's not this world, but it's a fantasy world uh, that's drawn on aspects of this world. So in this case, my world building here pulls a great deal from West and Central African mythology and folklore, but also bits of the African diaspora. So there's some carnival folklore in there. There's some second line New Orleans folklore in there. So I, I try to throw a little bit of everything in there. And the story revolves around a young girl named Benny who lives in this small forest, uh, this small village in a forest. She basically lives in the sticks. She doesn't know anything about the outside world. The outside world doesn't know anything about her. The only thing she's interested in is that it's her birthday and there's a harvest festival where there's going to be masquerades and partying, and that's all she's interested in. That, and next year she'll be 13 and she'll be able to take her first right to womanhood, right? And so these are the only things that concern her. But of course, something happens that day. Her village is attacked uh, by these warriors with flaming swords and wielding magic, and um, she ends up being the only survivor of her village. Her, the adults are dragged away, the children are spirited away somewhere else. And she's actually saved by this old woman that people claim is a witch who lives outside the village. And she finds herself living in a witch's house where there are many doors that lead to other places. Uh, she will find herself dealing with all of this new magic. There are, you know, plants that whisper and gossip. And it's just her trying to become acclimated to this world where she is now supposed to be a witch's apprentice. And she's very reluctant. And so, you know, the story really revolves around her trying to, uh, she's determined to find her old friends again and to find her family, uh, but also dealing with this entrance to this new world, right? Where there's all this magic and monsters. And if she finds out that there's a war, right? This uh, war that's going on. I think much like Danielle, yeah, I'm pulling on some um, heavy themes here, uh, but those were the kind of books that I liked when I was younger, pulled on heavy themes like that. And, you know, I tried to do it. I think what you said so well, writing in a fantasy landscape, because I think there's a way that people are more willing to address those things or think about them yeah. in that way. And certainly, you know, I'm a historical novelist and, and I mind World War II for a number of reasons. But there's certainly a way of bringing young readers into history by making it fiction. Yeah. Or taking it to what you've done and making it fantasy, but it doesn't mean to say that the historical lessons you're not trying to preach, but you're trying to to pass on um, are are still very much there, even if you have set it in a completely different world. So you know this is authors and audiences, and this is about pre- presentation and promotion and and standing up in front of an audience and not passing out. <laughs> so, so let's talk about your audiences. You know, both of you write across genres um, and across age levels. So who do you think of as my audience? Um, and do you keep that audience in mind when you're writing a story? 
That's really good. I think I'm writing to that like 11 year old kid that came in my library asking for things constantly. Like I had a couple of them that were just voracious readers. And I think I'm always writing to that audience. And also, I don't think I've grown up. I think I'm still 11. Like I still feel 11. So for like this, you know, magic school story, I still feel like I haven't, I still will laugh at a fart joke. If someone trips, I'll be like, don't laugh, don't laugh. You know, like I'm still, I still feel like I haven't grown up. And so I'm sort of trying to like get back to that. But yes, always in mind, the child reader, the child, like, so that I can make sure that I'm taking care of that reader, that audience and feeding them. And if they get, like you were just talking about, passing on the the medicine if they get the medicine they'll get it but if they don't they've also got a fantastic story that helps build their imagination and maybe helps them dream of you know what i mean where they fit in this world or a new world that can spring out of it so but i still feel like i'm 11 years old how about you yeah daniel you're writing to me and in many ways i i mean i'm echoing you here i am i mean i'm trying not to sound like a narcissist but i'm writing to myself um the time that i so when i was younger my mom took my sister and i to the library like religiously It, it was like church we went several times a week we were constantly in there. I was the kid walking out with stacks of books. I used to win the most books read in the summer. Gotcha. The pizza and the bug, you know, my pizza. Exactly. Pizza. Hi, dude. And pizza and everything. Yeah, I was like, and so that was me. I was always a voracious reader. And then when I was in school, I was the kid who came in early and I was in the library. I was there at lunch if I could be. I was there after school. And so I was constantly reading. And really, as I think back about my writing life as an author, I think back about my reading life. And I think mm-hmm. that when I was that age, I was I was like eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. That was like when I think I probably enjoyed reading the most. Oh, yeah. I was discovering whole new tropes, whole new worlds. And I would just fall into those things. I was the kid with the flashlight on one of my covers or reading the book. I'm, I should have been reading this math book, but here's this other book. Behind it, I'm glad we really. each other like in elementary school because we were supposed to be in the principal's office. So, is that what went wrong with the chemistry at <laughs> college? Because you actually read the pictures, right? Should have paid attention. Forget balancing equations, right? And so, yeah, so when I'm writing, I think I'm still writing to that kid that I was, mm-hmm. and especially with this, I think I've happily had some of the most fun. In writing this, because like you said, I'm thinking back about the things that I thought was funny, the things that and things that I thought was serious at the time, like dealing with uh, like a Benny has to deal with people she meets who are their spirits and they can shape, they can change shape. They look like they're 13 or 14, but they are really like 90 and act like it too. Um, and she has to like, and they are, they're very powerful. And one of them is just a lot to deal with. And I think back about, you know, what it was like learning to make friends and dealing with people who you may not have gotten along with. And you're like, why do I get along with this person? We argue. And so all of those things that I think about today, time, that's my audience, uh, the me of that kid at that time. And so I, I, I hope I'm also speaking to, you know, kids of that age who are also interested in that, as well as I might add the adults like me who, and like Danielle, who are still kids of that age, who can still read and love it just as much because it reminds them of their experiences at the time and all the magic portals they wanted to go through. So, you know, having come 
from publishing adult yeah. science fiction fantasy world, which is quite a, a specific audience that you're talking to. How has this book felt different in terms of the promotion and the launch? Oh, I want to know it? this. Well, everything, well, I should say that I'm not that serious with my adult fiction either, so I'm a little childish in my writing, so it helps that people always say, like, not your serious things. Things. you do these serious things, but then they're jokes. Like I said, yeah, there always has to be jokes. Who doesn't want a good joke, right? So I never try to get too serious. So that's helped. But yeah, I mean, I was actually scared. As much as I wanted to do this, it was scary, because I remember what I was like at 11 and 12. I remember I was very judgmental. Kids are going to be judging me, right? They're like, what you got? And so a lot of it was just in writing, me thinking about things that I liked when I was younger. I love, for instance, I bought these up, uh, Madeline Engel's Wrinkle in Time books. I love the Earthsea books. And I think I love those books so much because I felt that they gave me all the magic and fantasy, but they were talking up to me, right? I felt like they were treating me like I was older and talking about these heavy topics, Right. Even though I was young. And so I tried to capture that balance in my writing where maybe I'm not writing on the level of when I'm writing an adult book, but I don't want to, you know, put it to a point where the kids feel like I'm talking down to them. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I want to believe that they can meet me where I am. And so finding that balance was a real challenge. Now, as far as marketing and promoting, uh, as I had my first school visit today, uh, it's a different beast entirely. It should be, we should, in fact, uh, write a series of books about somebody who goes around just trying to promote their book. And so it's, it's been a, it's been a learning curve. It's, uh, in learning, like, um, how to address, uh, children of a certain age how to draw them in, the things they might find exciting. And it's it's something that I'm, I'm learning every day. And Danielle here is showing me the ropes. Uh, and yeah, it's a, it's a different world. Even though what, what helps is I have a lot of adults who bring who read my books, who bring their kids along and be like, you're like, I'm going to buy this because you're going to like this. And so I'm like, great, great. Excellent. Excellent. The trouble, is, I always think, when particularly with middle grade and younger books, you have to almost market to the gatekeepers. You're marketing to the parents and the teachers and yes. the books and the librarians rather than marketing to the kids because they don't have they don't have the contacts and they don't have the ready income. But you still want to talk to the the kids and and actually get them to sell the book to their gatekeepers and their whoever's going to buy the book. Because that's how you actually have success in middle grade. You get to the teachers, the parents, the librarians, and then once the kids have it, they're the ambassador. Mm. Like I talked to um, Uncle Rick, is what we call him, Rick Raritan, about it. And he said that he was like, yes, you get the teachers, the librarians on board. But once the kids love it, they tell the other kids. And then it just passes like fire. Yeah. It just like you, it, they do it themselves. I, when I was running my library, I had little librarians that were sixth graders and seventh graders. And then I would have them read and then they would go around and get others to read. Kids want to read what other kids are reading. Yeah. And so once you plant that seed, that's how you get them. Fantastic. Yeah. And so the memory thieves is the second in the series. How different is it or, or is it different to promote the follow-up to a successful book rather than because you're almost hoping that they've read the first one before you try and talk to them about the second. And if they haven't, 
how do you not spoil the first while promoting the second? You really can't promote the second. You have to just keep promoting the first book to invite them into the second. And you can give them a few teasers about what's to come without spoiling it. Just saying, obviously, we know the main character made it through book one is, is alive and well, right? And so you say, but had some challenges and those get worse in book two. Um, and so really, I'm really on another Marvelers book tour. Um, and talking about the memory thieves only a little bit because again I don't want to spoil it and I have to get them into the first book mm. and now we're out in paperback which I think is even more accessible for more students and families so it's really about getting them excited about the ingredients of the larger world to get them to stay around for the book too excellent and so in general terms, you're both teachers or have been teachers how hard is it for you to stand up in front of an audience? I mean, an audience of middle graders is terrifying. I'll give you that. But does teaching help you not fear standing up in front of an audience? Or do you still have nerves? Well, I was curious about how it was for you this morning. That's different for me because I should say, when I say I'm a professor, and so all of my students are ages 18 and up. (laughs) Can be far up, almost me, right? My students are are all different things, and um, they generally do not talk when you're talking. Understand that they are paying for this. Yeah. They just have, they have just a different understanding. And so that is a world apart from talking to public schools, talking to younger audiences, or talking to middle grade students. Um, that's just, yeah, it's an entirely different world. Right. And so I won't say that I'm, I'm used to speaking in front of audiences. It's something that, it's not a problem for me, though. You know, people say that most people would prefer um, uh, death than speak in public. Yeah. So I always think like at a funeral, more people would rather be in the coffin than giving the eulogy. <laughs> but that's not me. But I got to admit, this morning, I was like, y'all are like, uh, y'all make me a little nervous. It's a little, it's different. It's different. It's a different, it's a different vibe. I've known it was a different vibe. It was not what I was expecting. I was like, I know it's going to be different uh, trying to talk to younger audiences mm-hmm. and trying to connect with them. And so... Yeah. Challenge. Challenge accepted. Challenge accepted. You did great. You did great. And we had like a very challenging um, school visit this morning. Uh, Just some curveballs thrown at us, you know. I had a a professional teacher there who knew Uh, what to do, knew how to handle it. Yeah. I guess I actually prefer speaking to children than speaking to adults. I find that even with their behavior issues, right, I can get kids to be excited about magic, where so many adults have lost their imaginations and lost their zest for books, for for even just story and wordplay and humor by paying bills and life and living, right? And um, so I find it exciting to talk to kids. But there are, you know, teacher tools that I have from trial by fire of 13 years Mm. that I think when you don't have them, you're like, oh, no, like, you can feel that pressure. But um, I love it. Like I, I thrive on it. Because as soon as you know, you've gotten a certain kid, they're like, laser focused on you. And you know, I'm like, oh, you're there. You're there. I say less, you know, and there are a few kids that were just like watching like, and wanted to know everything. And so I just, I love the challenge. Not that I don't like the college students and the, you know, grad students. I just find them to be, have lost pieces of their imagination versus young people still have access to that. Mm -hmm. And um, 
I love that part of it. Mm. Behavior issues aside. Yeah. I mean, certainly, you know, having done school visits myself, that there's always, you know, it's that helicoptering that you do where your mouth is saying something to these, but the helicopter parent, the helicopter, yeah. is watching the kid at the back oh, yeah. who is not paying attention mm. or is doing. You want, you almost want to get them yeah. to focus more than the one that the kids at the front who kind of deserve your attention because they're giving you their attention. But you just want to turn that kid around and just make a difference. And it doesn't always happen, does it? No, I just make really severe eye contact. And then it's usually they're like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. Then see. Right. And I have an ability to just, I can talk and talk and talk, and I'm watching that kid, and that kid knows that I've seen them. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, but it's hard. And I also think even that kid who might not be paying attention might actually still receive something Mm -hmm. later on. You never know. Yeah. You never know. So, but I always love to reward the kids that are like so excited because it makes our job easy. So have you got kind of one really memorable speech or presentation that you did for whatever reason, for good or ill, um, one that has just stuck with you that you would love to either repeat or you swear you will never, never make that mistake? I hope to never have a school visit like we had this morning again. (laughs) That was my first school visit. So now that I know that that is on the low end, I'm like, oh, you should be excited. I should be able to do that. I did a trial by fire, then okay. I got hazed into my worst. Do that something else. I think my favorite visits I've done is I had like these little girls that are like tiny and they grilled me. Like it was like they had found everything about me. They were like, why do you eat cupcakes upside down? Why do you like they Googled and researched and they came ready to roast me. And they were like, in your book, you did this and this and this. And I just thought, kids, I love you. You come ready. Right. You know, and so like when I get to meet with sort of smaller groups of kids that have their teachers have done the work to prep them and then they get excited and they've come and they're like little interviewers. I love that because they they have just been given the free reign to interview versus the teacher interviewing me. They get to do the interviewing. And I love that sort of kid uh, focused and kid forward activity. And those are my favorite kinds of visits because then I get to see their personalities. And even when they're shy, I had this little girl introduce me and she was like tiny and she read my whole bio. And then she added all of these things. And I was like, you're better public speaking. You're nine, you know? And so I just love those kinds of things. Um, In New Orleans, I had a great class like that. They just grilled me on everything. I'm like, where'd you find that? You know, they researched me. So it was great. I don't have one from children's books. I haven't had enough experiences to to have an experience like that. I mean, I hope I do. Um, I'm waiting for something like that. I mean, now, I I guess what I can think of my interactions with uh, audiences is probably when I've traveled out of the country and I'm like in France or Spain and I I did a four hour signing wow. in Spain with people who love, I wrote this book Ring Shout, which is very American audience and they just loved it. And I'm just, I'm like, how did this, and I'm fascinated, like how did this appeal to you? Because I'm, this is a very American audience centric book, but it led them down. Somebody showed me the books they went to read about U.S. history because they wanted to know more. And they came with like a stack. And it was just it was just amazing when I think that, you know, because I have audience, I'm writing for mostly for an English audience. I want anybody to read, of course, but an English speaking audience that 
you know, that I have these audiences elsewhere who are latching onto some of these books, even if they're talking about things that may be less familiar to them, mm-hmm. that they're still finding of interest. So that's always been fascinating. Excellent. Excellent. Mm-hmm. So we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to be back talking about the theme that we're going to be running through the whole of this season. Are you an author looking to boost your book's visibility or to develop your personal brand in the literary world? Or to keep track on all the interesting promotional tools that other authors seem to be using? And I've got a newsletter just for you. Caroline Leach writes is, along with the Authors and Audiences podcast, my source for you to get expert tips on presenting, promoting, yes, and even perfecting your writing skills. From first draft to final manuscript, from querying to launching to branding, my newsletter will help you with great tips and useful insights to introduce yourself and your books to the world. Join me as I gather in a powerful community of passionate authors and literary enthusiasts and be the first to receive news of my interviews with best-selling authors, detailed marketing strategies that work, swipe sheets so you too can harness the power of social media, and also some occasional writing inspiration that will ignite your creativity. So, whether you're a seasoned writer or just starting your journey, please go to carolineleachwrites.com slash newsletter today and hit subscribe. Not only will you allow me to illuminate your path forward, I'll also send you a free gift just to get us started. Let me help you build up your knowledge, your networks, and help you turn over the next page in your writing career. That's carolineleachwrites.com forward slash newsletter, or click the link below in the show notes. So welcome back, and I am excited now to introduce a new theme. So in every interview of the first season, I asked all my guests to tell me something about the writing community, because to me, you can't be a writer unless you have a published author, unless you have a community around you, because either you will just lose your mind with the stress and strain of, of the publishing world. So you need your own cheerleaders who know that, you know, no matter what they think of the book, they're still going to give you five stars left right and centre. <laughs> um, but this season, I thought I'm going to shift slightly. And I want to talk to my, all my guests about the books as business. And it's something that I think an awful lot of people go into writing simply because they want to write a book and they want to have their name on the the spine of a book and show it off to everybody. But actually, they haven't thought about what it means to be a professional author and the strains that that can put on you. Um, So I would love to ask you both about how you handle the business of being a writer. So whether it's, you know, the admin involved, the contractual stuff, the meeting deadlines, um, or the marketing and promoting the books like you're doing at the moment, you know, especially all the traveling that you must do um, for book tours, because traveling for fun is not the same as traveling on a book tour, is it? But also doing school visits of all sorts and media interviews. So, you know, of your writing week or say your writing year is probably the easier way to do it. How much time and energy do you feel like you spend on the business side of being a writer of your professional writing life rather than the creative side, which is actually, you know, coming up with the ideas and writing them down? I'm curious. You've got um, kids. I know. 
It's it's really fun. I think I think we're gonna have a different experience here mm-hmm. because Daniela is a, is a mogul. Whatever. <laughs> we will come to the virtual circles. Yes. Me. It's a little it's a little different because and this is something actually talking about talking about now and learning and things where I still feel like I'm in the learning mode and trying to figure these things out because um one thing is I have a great agent. I have um my publishers so far have been well my publicists and so they do a lot of the work, you know, because I'm not an independent bookseller and these kinds of things, they do a lot of the work for me. And it's more so go here, go there. <laughs> And me saying, okay, I can or I can't. And my my biggest challenge is just my schedule. I have uh, twin five-year-olds. I am a professor uh, going up for tenure this year. Yeah, buddy. Uh, So, you know, like while I'm writing and doing all of this and they want me to market, I'm like, I have a book coming out with Cambridge Books, an academic book coming out that I finished. And so a lot of the business for me has been just finding the time to write. And then after that, finding the time to market, right? And um, it can be busy. And I try to turn them into mini vacations. I go to France or Spain. I spend a few more days be in Paris so I can be in Madrid um, before I go. And so it has been challenging. Um, And I think for the middle grade book, it's probably a bit more challenging because I have to school visits and the places they want to send me to. It's going to children's book festivals where people where I'm not a known entity like giving belts and you know who's this guy and me having to really talk up the book or follow puppet shows. I'm gonna get you there. Yeah it's gonna be it's, yeah. it's something yeah right and so really it's been a it's been a learning moment for me and that's why I'm happy I'm talking to Danielle I was talking to other people I met this weekend it's just giving me ideas where I think what I'm learning, and I'm still in the process of doing it, is I probably need to take more charge of my when I'm marketing books to younger writers than I would for the adult books. I probably should take more charge of that too. <laughs> my publicist probably say, "Yeah, you should." But my agent's like, "Are you going to talk and ever mention the book when I do interviews?" <laughs> so probably so. But I think I, I'm already coming up with ideas and things. I think I I think it's just I do need to take more charge and actually be much more intentional. Uh, with what I'm doing, but like I said, I'm I'm learning, so mm. I'm always open to new ideas uh, on how to do all of this. Yeah, but I mean, as you say, Danielle is a mogul, oh, and, and not only do you write books, you know, you're the CEO of We Need Diverse Books, which is an extraordinary yeah. powerhouse in sorting out all the problems you were talking about earlier, um, and is making a huge difference as far as as far as I can see, in actually the number of authors who are being pulled into what had been a very white middle class publishing um, world beforehand. Um, you also do founded Black Girls with Magic, which mm-hmm. is actually creating a space for people of colour to be within the magic world and girls, particularly, you know, fantasy and, and uh, science fiction and whatever. But how do you actually find balance <laughs> between all of that? I mean, it's all admin in that you're not creating while you're doing it. And people are looking to you as a spokesperson and as a leader in in the whole of the industry, really, you're the leader. How does that work with then balancing your own writing needs and your the needs of your family and friends and, and you know, real your real life? life. <laughs> yes. Um, 
Yes, I guess I do quite a few things that I don't always like to talk about, but um, I think it comes from being a teacher, right? And so having a high level of executive functioning naturally from my profession, having to take care of 30 kids in a classroom and chart their educational growth over the course of a year and make sure that they don't harm themselves during the day or, you know, all of that, like being able to do a lot of multitasking. I wasn't always successful early on when I started all of my adventures. When I became COO of We Need Diverse Books, I also um, am, am a packager. I have my own entertainment company where I've packaged over 55 books. Uh, and then I also do my own writing. It's calendar management. It's getting good people to support you and having a team Um, and then creating these priority lists that shift every week. And I don't write every day. And I had to release myself from that. So many writers are like, I write every day. Walter Dean Meyer said, the way that you write a book is you write like 500 words a day, every single day. And then that becomes a book. Well, I can't do that. So I had to, you know, and some of my write, my friends do do that. I can't. My brain doesn't function that way. I write in bursts. I have to be in a fugue state actually to write. It's very probably toxic, a toxic relationship with my own creativity where I do the thinking. I need the story thinking. I need six months to think through my book, to plan it, to think through the themes, see the chapters, the characters. I outline a little bit, use my notebook. And then I write every single one of my books within the span of three to four weeks. It's obsessive. It's manic. And my hands hate me for it. I have to ice them. I have to heat them. I have to brace them at night. But I can't. I haven't figured out another way to be able to stay in with all of the things I have going on, stay in my story world. Um, I can't do that over a year. It has to be in these short bursts. So I write about three times a week, um, depending on when I'm on deadline. And then I try to do my admin for myself and in the mornings and then my admin for everyone else in the afternoon um, when I'm less fresh, (laughs) but I can still get it done. But it's a lot of just using my teacher skills that I learned from being in the classroom and being able to manage a lot of different things and trying to guard my time and just block out like, nope, this is just writing or just researching creativity time. I need need to learn from you. So one of the other things I do is teaching courses and querying agents and and also in book launches and, you know, presentation. And I think probably the biggest thing that people ask about in the non-writing side of of what I teach is social media. Uh And yeah, (laughs) and that is very often the response. So, you know, do you, in general terms, do you love social media? Do you hate it? Do you even do it? And, you know, I've heard stories of people being told that an agent won't touch them unless they have 100,000 followers on on Instagram. I have that. I've never heard. Which you don't want me, that agent. But, um, I don't think you want that agent. So, you know, social media was actually, it's interesting because social media to me was actually like a lifeline. Because when I was trying to get into the publishing world, it was like, and I'll say this for people who live in New York. You ever see a street in New York and you need to get there and you can see the building you need to get to, but you can't get to it. Mm-hmm. And every time you come up, it's like, you can't go this way. You can't. It's like, I can see it, but I can't get to it. And that's what it was like. I was outside that world of, of publishing, the business side. And I was on the outside looking in and I could see it, but I couldn't get to it. And social media for me opened up a space where I could suddenly meet all of these agents who had been like 
behind their own paywall and their own castles. I could meet all these agents. Remember, they would do the pitch mats and these kinds of things. I could meet agents there and I could meet editors and other writers and I could hear their stories. And I'll just be like listening now. And it was it was just interesting to be in that world. And I think it was helpful for me when I eventually, I mean, literally, so really quick story. First story that broke me in, the one that I was reading as I was uh, walking to get my PhD, is a story called A Dead Jin in Cairo. That story literally launched my writing career, my professional writing career. I'd written a few short stories before, but that's when, that's why I'm a tour. <laughs> that's why I'm writing it for Gil Miller. Um, I wrote that story. It was too long. I didn't know what to do with it. I thought I would just be retiring it. I sent out something on Facebook and I said, does anybody think they want this? An editor at Tor who was looking for a diverse steampunk story said, huh, send that to me. And game over. There's a story. Right place, right time, luck. Yep. Right? And the fact that I decided to put myself out there. So social media was good to me that way. Mm -hmm. And it was good to me in being on places like Twitter. That's its name. Uh, No, it's called Twitter. Uh, where I could meet a lot of these agents and everything. And then as I published, like I found like Instagram is amazing. There are all these book reviewers. There are these people, bookstagrammers. There are people who stage your book. And I have been invited on how many small shows where I've gotten to meet all these readers. I've got to interface with readers in a way that I don't, and not toxic readership too. For the most part, they're, they're readers who are like, I'm, I'm contacting because I like your book, not because I want to complain about it. <laughs> right? And so... It's been useful in that way, but of course it can also be treacherous. It can also be a place full of trolls that send you death threats and attack you. And I would say, like, as I said before, I'm a little lucky that I'm a six foot dude. So I don't get as much of it as many women and others, especially women of color that I don't get. And so I've been able to, to use the space, though Twitter's, it's become harder. I've probably not done as much on advertising, but now I'm doing a lot of it on Instagram. So I think it's, it's useful. I don't agree with the you have to have followers. That's 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 crazy. But it's been useful as a tool of advertisement for me. But I I do think um, you can't get locked in that niche, and especially for middle school, you gotta go out there and yeah, meet the, the readers yeah, aren't they're there. Not, yeah. they're not there. Yeah. Well, I think social media was a powerful tool. Yeah. I mean, we need diverse books. We launched um, our five hundred one three C after going viral for three days on Twitter with the hashtag We Need Diverse Books. So it worked for a, a long time until it didn't work anymore, right? Until it became very corporate and it became a place for um, a negative algorithm driving everything because negativity always drives the algorithm better than positivity. And so I think that now we have to find new places to connect. Um, and so I loved social media for a lot of the time, but then it got really nasty and dark and you get doxxed and the hate mail and the threats and the death threats, it just becomes too much. And so now I'm my goal is to be like Suzanne Collins who wrote the hunger games who doesn't use social media at all <laughs> and her books sell. That's like my pie in the sky dream because growing up without it, right? Remembering the time before the internet and then the time of the internet, that weird generation, right? I just miss the fact that I didn't feel the pressure that everyone needed to know what I had for breakfast, mm-hmm. like where I was going, what I was doing and this incessant you know, hyper-focus. And yeah. there's no digital media literacy that is needs to be starting in kindergarten all the way through mm-hmm. to remind young people of like the thing, the internet is forever. And um, 
And I just hate the pressure that I feel to be online and to perform Mm. and to be so open with everything. I'm a person that has been doxxed before. So putting where I am and what I'm doing is just feels uncomfortable to me. So I don't actually like using social media. I'm forced to. Mm. I also have a wonderful team that helps me, makes my graphics, tells me when to post, Mm. posts them for me. But like, I hope to be in a place where I can just be like, oh, we're reading now. Coming out, she yeah. oh she's somewhere on the Isle of Skye. She's too busy. She's gone, but she's there. She'll be out twice a year for a signing, and that's it. Like I'm looking for my exit plan. Mm-hmm. Where so, you know, on the Isle of Skye. Yes, somewhere for <laughs> the bridge. Oh, the bridge. folks that people expect. People do expect me to perform and everything like their life, and it's it's really funny because I've often treated it as like, well, you can know this and this, but everybody's at a distance, mm-hmm. like. Social media friends, we're not friend friends. Right. right. I mean, I mean they don't understand that, right? And there are things like I remember on Instagram, somebody saw that I had kids, and then on Twitter it was like, "I've never seen your kids." I said, "No, you have." Good. <laughs> said, I've never it. posted a picture of my children on Twitter. I never would. They can't. Uh, or Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't even. I would, you know, I would never send a picture of my family or anything like that. And so I'm like, I said, on Instagram, I'm probably a bit more open, but I still. Yeah, I believe in maintaining that, like, look, I'm I'm cordial and friendly, but no, I'm, I'm not going to send you every time I, what I drank the other day and what I ate. Swarming in the negativity yeah. that can be very frustrating in this business and in this job. And people love sort of the one-star review tagging you yeah, yeah. or the swarming you. I get swarmed a bit and I'm like, oh, here we go. What happened? Yeah. I'm like, oh, another... So- Talking of negativity, yes, this is of course Band Books Week. Oh yeah, oh, and um, you know I couldn't let it go past without asking you very specifically because you know the political shenanigans that's going on in this country at the moment, you know, particularly within public school districts, particularly within Houston public school district, the Greater Houston, not simply Houston ISD, where politicians and extreme political groups are, are really using books as weapons. And it means that organisations like We Need Diverse Books are even more important than they were. And it feels like even just in the last year, you know, here in Houston or in Florida or whatever, we're losing school libraries by the second. And they're turning the ones in Houston into punishment classrooms instead of libraries. And really on the nose there. Clear, you know, clearing shelves of, of books because somebody hasn't said that they're safe in, in quotes. So, you know, have your own books been subject of a ban? And how did that, how did you react to that other than starting up a major lobbying group? Obviously. Yes. So, one of my books, I think two of them have been banned in Florida. They're uh, Whiteout and Blackout. They're love stories featuring black teenagers. want to ban that that's great um and i get soft banned so like i will get school visit invitations rescinded because i run many diverse books right um things like that and i as a former librarian it's annoying it's frustrating it's also but we know this and you know this from the story of history when we have great progress we always bend back 
There's backlash. And that's what this is. We want to erase the textbooks. We want to tell children lies. We want to monitor their reading in, in this way, in this way that makes everyone upset where it's like, oh, the children, what about the children? Right. But we're only catering to one kind of child. And so, and I'm like, if you don't want your child, I very much believe this. If you don't want your child to read something, then you get to decide that. You don't get to decide what every child reads, mm. like, because you didn't birth or raise all of these children. Yeah. So you don't get to decide that. If you don't want them to sit through my presentation, I had a couple of kids whose parents opted out because I think that magic is demonic. Sure. Don't come to my presentation about magic school. Mm. That is your choice. Yeah. But you don't get to tell the other hundred children that they don't get to see me or engage yeah. with my fictional yeah. universe about magic school. Yeah. So, you know, if, if you're having invitations rescinded, mm -hmm. that means that you are being invited by a fantastic librarian mm. who sees the benefit. And then somebody, whether it's the authorities yeah. or parents are finding out that that's there mm. and they're telling them to pull it back. Next time, they just won't send out the invitation, exactly. right. which means that, you know, school visits and access to authors like you will just disappear. And it affects the bottom line. They will know that they're going to be threatened with their own job if they keep and inviting authors them. who are going to have their invitations rescinded. It's sad. And also they're losing, you know, authors are losing, you know, their livelihood and their money. And also librarians are being threatened with jail time and having to go to court. And to me, librarians are the lighthouses of a community. Mm -hmm. Libraries are. They're the refugees. And so if we lose those, we're in big trouble because we will have an illiterate population mm -hmm. that doesn't know how to think, that doesn't know how to analyze what is real, what is not real, what is fact, what is fiction. Um, and we're going towards you know, trying to control people through not allowing them to have access to information. And so when I was a kid, I was in the library every single day. And if I wasn't allowed to read something, my mother told them I wasn't allowed to read something. Otherwise, I got to read what I selected. And I just believe that libraries should have all the books, even the ones that I don't like. There are plenty of books I don't like. But if we don't allow all the books and we cherry pick them, then who gets to be the arbiter? Yeah. Who gets to say what stays and what goes? Exactly. That's the tricky, tricky so thing. What can other authors do, and what can readers do to help fight this onslaught? Well, what I really think that's going to happen is that people are going to. The only way is the is the bottom dollar. Is that people are going to get sued? The American way is the courts is suing, right? And so some of these mothers um, of liberty and justice for all are going to need to get sued and lose money out of their pockets for their cause mm -hmm. for them to stop. All of these people who are harassing librarians are going to be hit with lawsuits. And there are so many libra librarians and also authors coming together through PIN America to sue school districts. And I fully, fully believe that. But also it's using your voice, parents going and standing up and yeah. saying, no, you as one person don't get to tell everyone, including my child, what they get to read. And I think supporting authors who've been banned, trying to support them through buying their books, through talking about their books, through inviting them to other platforms can be very, very helpful. And donating to places like PEN America and Mini Diverse Books and um, joining that cause. Because if we don't all stand up, we're going to be in big, big, mm -hmm. big trouble. Yeah when it comes to this. I think, you know, what you said is right about people standing up. Every poll you take, 
Um, most people are against book banning across the political spectrum. Most people don't like, I mean, I'm here in Texas. I mean, we were just talking about this. I was like, Texans are letting Jesus. people tell them, oh, telling the government, tell them what to do in Texas, the Lone Star State. Well, I said, I grew up in Texas. I've never seen this before. Like, it's something like this in, in Texas of all of all places. They will not do it for spite. Right? It's just because you told them, I'm going to read the book now. I don't even know what it's about. And so I think part of this is that the groups and people doing this are very loud, well-funded, uh, very well-funded, astroturfed uh, organization, but they are a minority. Mm -hmm. And what they're doing is they're trying to, like you said, drag everyone along with them because I think the rest of us, don't. most of us don't have the time to go down and yell at the school board. We don't have the time. We're just going through life, and most people don't even understand that there's an issue until after something has happened, right? They're like, our library is closed, or this book is gone. And, they're, and most people are confused because they don't live inside this bubble that these very organized, very intentional, like when I first saw them, I said, those signs are really well made for people who just put signs together. Mm -hmm. Right. And I said, where's this money coming from? Who is funding this stuff? Like, who are these guys who have perfect talking points and they're all saying the same thing. And I think what happens is the larger community who doesn't agree with this, however, isn't organized enough to actually push back. And I think part of this, where you're talking about using the courts, but also being organized to show up at the school boards and say, hey, I know that you guys are small and organized and you had time, but look at all of us. Yeah. We may not have the fancy signs, but we have more people here, right? We are the majority here. And I think it's just a matter of people realizing that you have to stand up against this local minority or they're going to pull everyone in that direction, even if you don't want to go there. Yeah. Excellent. Fantastic. So just to finish off, what are you working on now? Has 2024 got something fun for us? We're both in, in the in the hell that is, you know, another book in the series, you know, when you write serious fiction for children, you want it to come out every year because those fans will tell you. I'm getting mail already. Like I finished Memory Thieves. Where's the third book? I'm like, keep going. Let me live, live in peace. So I'm working on the third and fourth books in my Marveler series. But I'm also trying to go to the dark side and work on an adult fantasy. I'm like, I don't even like the pool that you're swimming in. Children's fiction is so much more fun, but I'm trying to dabble in and um, finish an adult novel, which is quite difficult. I am working on book two of a baby song. I'm like literally on the second to last chapter. I, any chance I get to write about my laptop, I tried to do it in the car coming in. I'm like, I got to get this down. This is all plot points got to tie together. It's going to be a beautiful, wonderful, over budget mess <laughs> that my editor is going to get. And I was like, we don't want to see it for another few months. And then we'll talk about how to cut like a quarter. We'll, we'll get back then. Um, so that's done. But uh, coming up in 2024, I will have, I'm going to have some, I have a short story out in a book that's coming out tomorrow, an anthology by uh, Jordan Peele's uh, Monkey Park Productions called Out There Screaming, which is an anthology of African-American horror. And so I get to have a story in there called Hide and Seek. Right. Uh, if you're not right. terror. I have uh, another book that recently came out. Uh, also, it's a spooky season. It's called The Book of Witches. And so I have a, a book, uh, I have a story in there as well. Uh, it's called What I Remember of Oresha Moondragon Defshrata. Yes, that's a full name. Uh, so a short story. And in 2024, I have another novella coming out, uh, a novella called 
The Dead Cattail Assassins. This is for adults, just as those two short stories were. What's the best pithy advice you've ever had about presenting and promoting as an author? Best advice. Best advice. I think, I mean, it's taking care of your audience, right? So me going and talking to college students is very different than me going and talking to sixth graders. And so I think understanding um, fundamental things about your audience is very important. And and making sure that if I'm going to my sixth, my sixth graders that I understand developmentally where they are, that they like more of an interaction, right? And they want to talk too, right? And having that back and forth and building that into my presentation and into my talk so that I feel like I'm taking care of them and their needs versus thinking that I can do one thing every single time and have it be the same. Um, Jackie Woodson told me to just like make sure that I was taking care of my audience, and I think that's the way I that's the way I translated it. Really, under having a deep understanding, so that I wasn't a one trick pony. That is the best advice I've ever heard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's the most crazy advice. I'm like sitting there, like yeah, that's it's cheap. <laughs> no, seriously, you can have that as my gift. <laughs> yeah, thank you, thank you. Excellent. So, just a very, very quick, fast, furious round. Are you an extrovert or an introvert? Outgoing introvert. Easy. I'm somewhere in between. Do you think of yourself as a storyteller or as a writer? Storyteller. Ah. <laughs> Sounds easy for me. I think I'm a writer. I think I'm a writer. Yeah, sometimes it's like if you were to say, are you an artist? I'd say, no, I don't feel like an artist all the time. So I feel like I'm a writer. I feel it's like very mechanical. See, that's funny. I always wonder if that question, because people frown at me when I ask that question. I wonder if writers don't understand the question, but storytellers do. Yeah. Here's the storyteller in me. Uh, if you're reading my book, I want to be over your shoulder. What do you think of that part? You think that part's cool? What do you think of that? I don't know. I was good with that. I can't wait till you get to this part. And that, you that's have, I can't even remember what I've written. I can't remember what I've written. I guess it's like if you have a child, you're like, you don't even remember the pain. Like, I don't remember that. <laughs> yeah. Like, talk to me about it. Don't look at me. I don't want to see it again. So, yeah. so were you read to as a child? And oh, yeah. you were, what can you remember being read? <laughs> so what did my mom, I mean, from very... Yeah, my mom was reading like Dr. Seuss books and things like that to me. So I remember her reading those uh, kind of books. Um, <laughs> I remember, I remember reading of all things. I remember her reading to me. Remember the the Little House and the Prairie books? Yes, I remember sure. reading. <laughs> I remember reading those kind of books to me. So yeah, I remember her reading those uh, books, and I started going into my what I wanted to read. So yeah. Oh, yes. I was, my mother says that I was very annoying about one particular picture book that I can remember every word to. It's by Kevin Hankies, those, those little mouse, mice, and it's called A Weekend with Wendell. And it's about a little bad mouse that comes to stay for the weekend and he's a bad house guest. And so I can remember it inside and out. I mean, I love all of those books anyway. He just has a way of capturing beautiful, beautiful dynamics. Uh, Lily's Purple Plastic Purse, Julie is the Baby of the World. They're wonderful picture books. But I remember that I can I can see it. I can smell it. Like I know that book. And I was read to all the time. Readers are made in the laps of other readers. Mm. That's what I used to tell my students' parents. You need to read to your children. Yeah, excellent. So where do you write best? And 
what do you eat and drink while you write? And I want you to tell me about, you live in an Edwardian castle, yeah. according to your bio. Yeah, I do. It's very fancy. Do you write in your yeah. yeah, that's why I, I probably do most of my writing there when uh, I have to write now when uh, the twins are off to sleep and I have like a moment because I can't do it. Because if I try to write while they're there, anyone who told you, well, you're just kids and you'll write while they're, ha, 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 no. Uh, it is jumping in my lap. I want to watch Bluey that he's trying to write. What are you working on? Is that a Benny song? Is that what that is? And so impossible and so yeah you know my dream was always especially when i lived in new york i'm going there was this place called the tea lounge for instance uh when i lived in brooklyn and i was like i'm gonna go there it's gonna be people with coffee and i'm gonna sit there with my that's, that's my dream policy mug of coffee that's what i still do i still have coffee or tea when i'm when i'm writing especially coffee and so i'm gonna sit there with my nice i'm gonna sip and i'm going to write and i'll just be in public writing Never works. I go in public and I try to write. I'll maybe get like a page. I'm too busy people watching. The coffee's too good. Uh, and so I probably do most of my writing uh, in my home. Though I will say, when I wrote uh, A Master of Jin, which is my first novel, I wrote that um, over a few periods of months traveling to different academic conferences. And I wrote those in hotels in Barbados, in Trinidad, and in Havana, Cuba. It's a hard life. Someone, like, there was a point where I was in a hotel in Havana, Cuba, and the best internet was on the top floor, like the 20th something floor in this hotel. And the windows were open, so the breeze would be coming. And you could see the sea. And one night I was writing, it was a storm, and there was just lightning falling into the sea. And I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> It's like, this is the most amazing. I think I have one of my best writing nights for that. So I wish I could. I, I can't recreate that all the time. So it's normally at my house. I write where I can, so I don't have any sort of general place. I write a lot on planes because I'm always traveling. Um, and I really like to write. I do have an office, which I don't write a lot in. I do a lot of admin. Um, but I do my most my best writing when I'm a little bit uncomfortable, um, when I'm not home or I'm not in a space where I could be doing other things. The couch is too cozy. In my house, I'm like, oh, I could be doing my laundry, I could be cleaning, I could be baking, I could be cooking. So I like to write when I'm away, when I'm away from home. Um, and, you know, your general, give me a good cup of tea. Um, I'm a cookie monster, so I like all kinds of cookies, which is a problem. But now it's like if I do my word count, I'll get the cookies. So I don't eat while I'm writing. I have to earn it to get it. And if I don't get it, then I can't. Oh, the way we torment ourselves. Yeah. Like yeah. So, okay. Two last questions. Where's your favorite bookstore? That is evil. And that can get us in a lot of trouble. No, we all have a home bookstore. The reason I ask is because I want to link to that bookstore okay. from the show notes so that we support your, assuming it will be an indie bookstore, mm -hmm. um, then... I would like to link to your favorite sure, ones so that people yeah. buy their books from your store. You need to be deleted from the podcast. You say that. Um, it's Blue Willow Books. Lovely. We love Blue Willow Books too. Mm -hmm. That will also be my favorite Houston, but no, actually, I only have a favorite from my where I live now. I live in Connecticut. And my favorite bookstore is my wonderful indie bookstore that helped me premiere uh, a Benny song, great bookstore called Riverbend Books. Uh, and so that right now is my favorite bookstore because uh, 
it's great working with them, great folks. Fantastic. And despite what we said earlier about social media being hell on earth, where can we find you? Um, I'm no longer on Twitter X or whatever that situation is. So Twitter. Twitter. I'm not in the Twitterverse anymore, um, but I am on Instagram at Brown Bookworm. And then also, if you want to find out more about my series, you can go to theconjoverseseries.com and you can sort yourself into your Paragon and see all kinds of art and cool stuff or do my boring website, which is DanielleClayton.com. <laughs> so I am, I'm not on uh, Twitter as much anymore. I, mean, I think I, I post really sporadically. Um, but you can find me there or on Instagram um, or on threads now. Uh, and I'm always at P. Jelly Clark. So that's always my handle at all times. And also my uh, author website is pjellyclark.com. So please hold that. Well, thank you both so much for, for joining me. It's thank been you. really good fun. And uh, I can't wait to see, to get this out into the world and, and do my best promotion for you as well. Thank you so much for having us. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of Authors and Audiences. And I'd love to hear about anything that resonated with you or what questions came up that you'd like me to answer in a future episode or in one of my Instagram Live Q&As. If you have learned something today or if you have a question for me, please reach out to me via my website at carolineleachwrites.com or on any of the authors and audiences social media pages. All of those links are in the show notes below. Please subscribe to Authors and Audiences wherever you get your podcasts so that you won't miss any of my amazing guests or my presentation and promotion craft tips. And remember, any five-star ratings or positive reviews that you give me will make sure that all those pesky algorithms let other authors and illustrators find their way to authors and audiences so that they can feel confident about getting out there in public too. Thanks again for joining me. And I look forward to having you back here with me next time on Authors and Audiences. <laughs>